You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Happy to be with you guys this morning. Give you, I send you greetings from Redemption North. How many people attended Redemption North? I can see some. Oh, so a large group of you came down here. It's, it's really cool to just join with you guys and uh, worship with you this morning and have an opportunity to share God's word. I'm very uh, grateful for that. Uh, just before going any further, I would just like to pray if you just bow with me. Lord, we, um, with thanksgiving, we worshiped you and, and sang songs and praised your name. And now, just have the opportunity to open up your word this morning. I pray that you would speak to us through it. I pray you give us open ears and open hearts. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would uh, speak this word to us, Lord. Take away any distractions, any wandering thoughts. And uh, I pray you would use this word to lift up Christ. Give us greater faith in him and trust in him. And just bless, continue to bless our time this morning. And draw us closer to you, that you would receive the glory and honor to your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, before I'm getting into the word, I just want to say happy Mother's Day to all the mothers with us. Bless you for nurturing our children and investing in our children and blessing our homes. And may God's richest blessings be yours in Christ Jesus. And society may at times undervalue the role of mothers, um, but we want to just thank God for you. Uh, for being a mother is a high and holy calling, so thank you. And if anyone did not know it's Mother's Day, it is. It's on the calendar, uh, so you should know that. I hope you have something planned or you've bought a card or maybe at least make a phone call to your moms because it, it is on the calendar, so you should know that today is Mother's Day. But I want to talk about actually another a very important day uh, that is coming in the future, but it will not be on your calendar on your calendar. I want to talk about the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning, uh, the day of, of Jesus' return. Um, before we uh, open up the scripture, yeah, if you need a Bible, if you just want to raise your hand, and um, ushers will, will hand you a Bible. That was actually one thing going to Redemption North. I was really encouraged about, I don't know if there's anyone, I don't see anyone putting their hand up. Going to Redemption North, I was so encouraged when they're like, hey, we're going to get into the Word, but everyone open up the Word together, either on your phone or in a Bible paper form. I, that's just really encouraging. Whatever I'm saying, I want you to follow with me in Scriptures. The first part I'm going to go through quickly, we get to Revelation, we're opening up all together. What, if what I'm saying is true, is it found in the Scriptures? Hold me accountable by the Word of God. Um, so first, I just want to kind of lay the groundwork. Uh, I want to show you that in, in the New Testament... All the New Testament writers had a watchful anticipation of the Lord's second coming. I, I won't go into the Gospels, but I'm just going to start in Acts and just, just read a, a verse or two kind of from each writer and just show you how every New Testament writer was looking forward, was anticipating the Lord's second coming. So I'll just kind of start in Acts. You don't have to turn with me to these passages because I'll just go through them fairly quick. But just Acts uh, chapter 1 verses 9 to 11. This is as Jesus ascended into heaven 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And he said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who has, who has taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Already, he's going to come back. He went up into the clouds. He's going to come down uh, through the clouds. That's in Acts. In Philippians uh, 3.20. And you could do it in every book, and I won't. I'm just going to show a few of Paul's letters that he highlights the Lord's second coming. Philippians 3.20 says this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Apostle Paul writing. He also wrote in Colossians 3 verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So Paul uh, and I'll just give you one more passage. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, the Apostle Paul also writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul, in all of his letters, often talked about the Lord's second coming. He's coming again. The writer of Hebrews, we're not entirely sure who wrote uh, the book of Hebrews, some say Paul, others say Barnabas, or there's other names. But even in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, it's written, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the author of Hebrews was anticipating that. What about James, just after that? James chapter 5, verses 7 to 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter also anticipated the Lord's second coming. And in 1 John 3, verse 2, he writes this, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. It's not an exhaustive. I just kind of went through quickly in the New Testament. Every writer had this anticipation looking forward. Jesus is coming again. We're looking forward to that day, this watchful anticipation. There was a constant hope. What about you? What are you anticipating? What are you looking forward to? Are you waiting for anything? Is there anything that you're just like, in the near future, I can't wait till this happens? Maybe there's a big meal this afternoon. You're like, I cannot wait to get there. Maybe for some of you, it's to finish school. Maybe you have some holidays coming up. You're like, I cannot wait until we have those holidays. Or maybe you're looking forward to summer, that, that one week in July that appears and then is gone. Anticipating something means we're waiting. Are we good at waiting? Are we good at looking forward to things? We live in a world where mo most things can be given to us immediately, quite quickly. You know, I was just even thinking like McDonald's. You know, you're like, I go inside. It's pretty fast. But I'll go through the drive-thru because it's a little bit quicker. I don't really want to wait. But if waiting in the drive-thru is too long, now you can even get an app on your phone and you just type it in and then curbside pickup. Even that's even quicker or even thinking about ordering things off Amazon. It's amazing, right? The click of a button, you can have something come to your house in like three to four days. But, but, but that, 
we don't want to wait that long, right? So then we have Amazon Plus. It can come the next day. And, and soon there'll be something maybe like, you know, same day plus a button delivery. So I think, I don't know if we're necessarily good at waiting to begin with, but the technology that surrounds us doesn't help us uh, to wait well. It doesn't help us to anticipate. I was thinking on myself, when have I been uh, waiting in watchful anticipation? I thought back to my time in Bible college when I was, um, I guess, courting my wife in a sense, but, uh, or my wife-to-be. Uh, she was actually in South Korea at the time, teaching English, and I was in Bible college. And so we communicated a few different ways. We uh, did it by the phone and did it through email. Facebook had just came out, so we were sharing a few pictures. But kind of, I think the most important way for me we communicated was we wrote letters, you know, like on a piece of paper, right, in the mailbox. You have to explain this technology uh, now at times. <laughs> but I, I can tell you, I have never loved visiting a Canada post office like in that time. You know, I, was, I would go like daily and look into my mailbox. Oh, okay, there's nothing there. Just this anticipation of this letter from, from the woman I loved that I wanted to marry in the future, this watchful anticipation. And I think the New Testament writers have that for Jesus Christ. They're watching and they're waiting and they're telling their people in their letters, he's coming again soon. Be ready. Be ready for his second coming. I want you to see that, that the New Testament writers were often talking about Christ's second coming. How about you? How often do you think about our Lord's second coming? That's my desire this morning, that as we look upon the return of Christ, that it would grow in us a growing, watchful anticipation. And today, we're going to go to the end of the story. Uh, so, if you have a Bible, we'll be looking at Revelation chapter 19. If you want to turn there, Revelation uh, chapter 19. It's one of those times where if you have a paper Bible, Bible it's actually quicker because it's just the last book of the Bible and you, you can actually beat people on their phones. Uh, not always. Before we get into Revelation, I just want to give you a quick introduction. Uh, this is the final book of the Bible. It was written by the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. It's just off, off an island off of modern-day Turkey. And John was there because he was exiled by Roman emperor because he was preaching the gospel. Um, it's just a few things about this book as well. So God gave him a vision, the Apostle John, a vision of the future, which is recorded in this book. And a few things to mention. Uh, there are many things in Revelation that Christians will disagree on. If you start to go into like the main points, we have maybe different understandings of end times, how it's all going to work out. But there's a few things that we can all agree upon um, about this book. One, it's, it's framed as a letter. It's a letter to seven churches. But it's also an apocalyptic book, and it uses many images uh, and, and words to speak about things in the future. Um, it was written to churches in, time, in a time when believers were suffering for, be, for being persecuted for the gospel. The main themes of the letter are perseverance. So keep going in your faith. In the end, God wins. Everything will be made right. It's a, it's, a really, it's a shocking letter and it's an encouraging letter at the same time. And so again, we'll be jumping in at the end of the letter, towards the end of the letter, Revelation 19. And just before I read these passages, I just want to ask one more question. When you, when you think about Jesus, what comes to mind? When you think about Jesus, what comes to mind? Because 
In December, usually, church tradition, we spend about a month or at least a few Sundays considering Jesus' birth, which is amazing. Born from a virgin. You know, born in a stable. The most humble beginnings. God coming down in the flesh. And so we think about the birth of Christ for a considerable time. And then Easter has just passed. We think about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we want to talk about that often. That's, that's amazing. That's where our hope lies, uh, our faith in Christ, our redemption. I didn't mean to just say it because it's redemption, but truly, our redemption in Christ. But how often do we think about the second coming of the Lord? That's what I just want to bring up before you. We're going to talk about Jesus' second coming because when we worship Christ, we want to do that in spirit and in truth. And part of the truth is his second coming. So I want to bring that before your eyes this morning. So we'll be reading Revelation chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 16 uh, primarily, and then we'll continue on after that. So Apostle John saw, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This amazing picture of Jesus at his second coming. I just want to spend uh, the chunk of my time here just unpacking uh, what is said about Christ at his second coming here. If you'll see, first John sees heaven opened and behold a white horse. Early in, their letter, in the letter in Revelation, Revelation 4.1, John is kind of lifted up into heaven and he sees this um, vision of what will take place in the future. But now at this time, he sees heaven opened and the horse coming from heaven. And this is a reminder of where Jesus is at right now. He is in heaven. He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And what is he doing there? He's interceding for us. He's praying for us. I just want to spend a little bit more on that point. I think it'll be an encouraging uh, part of the message here for you this morning. Romans 8, 33 to 34 says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. A theologian by the name of Louis Burkhoff wrote this concerning Jesus interceding for us. It's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are neg negligent in our prayer life. He is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we're not even conscious and against enemies which threaten us though we do not even notice it. 
He is praying that our faith may not cease and that may, we may come out victorious in the end. Jesus is praying for you. Amen? Amen. That is a great thing. And so he returns from heaven where he is at right now. He returns on a white horse. And John MacArthur says this about the white horse. He rides a traditional white horse ridden by victorious Roman generals in their triumphant processions through the streets of Rome. That's what they, as they came back from war, they were on a white horse. They were the victorious ones. They were the conquering ones. MacArthur says, white also symbolizes the spotless, unblemished, absolutely holy character of the rider. And of the rider on this white horse, Jesus, there's a great many descriptions. And like I said, I just want to spend time talking about each description. And my desire is that his return would increase in us, uh, that we would increase a desire to keep watching, but also that our, our desire to praise him would increase as well as we consider who Jesus is at his second coming. It says this about him. The one sitting on it, on the white horse, is called faithful and true. Jesus is called faithful and true. Jesus is always faithful. He never starts anything and doesn't finish it. He's not like us. I don't know about you, but I often have good intentions. You know, I, maybe about eating a certain way. I don't know about you, but I love chocolate. And, and it's like, you get like lots of chocolate at Christmas time. And then like chocolate's on sale after that, so you get more. And then it's like Valentine's Day, so you get chocolate. And then and it's on sale after that. And then, and then it's Easter. And, and it's so there's so many holidays packed together. I'm just eating chocolate every day. And so I have this good intention. I'm like, I want to quit eating that. But I, but I mess up. I'm, I'm not as faithful on that. I have good intentions. Maybe doing a small thing around the house. I'll, I'll, I'll get to it tomorrow. I will, though. Tomorrow, I will. But Jesus is not at all like me. He's not at all like us. Jesus is always faithful. Praise the Lord. He's faithful even in Gethsemane, right? And he's praying before he's led to the cross. Father, if there's any other way, but your will be done. And he walks faithfully to the cross and dies for our sins. Jesus is faithful. And Jesus is true. John 14, 6, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the Father except through him. 1 Peter 2, 22 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus is the truth, and Jesus always speaks the truth. Every word he ever spoke is completely true, and we can trust it. We can trust God's word. So he is faithful and true. And it says, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. In righteousness, he judges. The book of Revelation records the judgment of God being poured out on the earth. Seven seals, uh, with each one being opened, bringing God's judgment upon the earth. Then seven trumpet, trumpets are blown, bringing God's judgments, and seven bowls of God's wrath are pour, poured out on the earth. And it's recorded in Revelation chapter 16, 7, as these judgments are happening upon the earth. John hears a voice from the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. One day, God will judge the earth and he will do it with complete justice. And he's coming to make war and his is a just war. 
right? Scholars have often talked about what is, what is a just war? Was World War II, was that a just war? You know, fighting against Hitler? Has Japan tried to take over the whole world? Well, that, that seemed just. What about the Korean War? Communist China, other communist groups wanted to come in and, and invade and kind of democracy and the, the, the early UN uh, push back. Was, was that just in fighting there? What about in Afghanistan? What about other wars that happened? They start to argue, is that a just war or not? But with Jesus going to war, there is no discussion because he is just in all that he does. Maybe some of you know the picture of the statue of justice. It's often uh, depicted for us as a woman, uh, blindfolded. She has a sword in one hand and scales in the other. And the reason that she's blindfolded is so saying that she would judge with impartiality, that she wouldn't like look on the people she's judging and, and, and make a case. Maybe I'm going to look the other way this time or not. But I want to remind you, friends, that justice is not blind because God is the one who judges and he sees all things and he judges righteously. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I look around at this world and I'm like, things are not the way they should be. There's a brokenness uh, that we all have inside of us. There's a brokenness that we all see outside of us in our society. And as we see brutal things happen, I don't know about you, kind of cry out, when, Lord, when will this justice come? But it will come when he returns. He will bring justice to this world and we can hope in that. And Jesus, as he comes, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Wow. Just like, just picture everything I'm reading. I don't know what John was thinking when he was seeing this. That would have been amazing and scary. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Jesus sees all things. Jesus can see to the very depths of our beings. Nothing is hidden from him. I heard just recently... Uh, that in London, they're talking about wherever you go in a public place in London, it's being recorded. Because there are so many cameras, like there's thousands of cameras everywhere. So wherever you turn, you're being recorded. And it kind of makes you think like, wow, our, our privacy is disappearing. Or, or perhaps it's gone already. Uh, but, but in reality, it's already gone. Because Jesus sees all things. You know, there's never a place where we can go on this earth, in a room, door closed, anywhere, where Jesus does not see us, right? Everything is revealed to him, the one who comes with eyes of flames of fire. He sees all things. And on his head are many diadems. Now, I'm sure that's common language. We all use diadems all the time. Well, what diadems means is either a royal headband, uh, we primarily translated as crowns. He comes with many crowns. In Revelation 12, 3, the dragon, which is Satan, appears, and he has seven diadems. And in Revelation 13, 1, a beast is introduced who is a false authority, and he's picturing having ten diadems. Well, as Jesus returns, he has many diadems. He has so many. Jesus has many crowns. The number is not given, but he is the real authority. His rule is supreme. Even as, as, as we see in Revelation uh, chapter 4, the 24 elders, they all have crowns, diadems. And what do they do with theirs? They just cast them before the throne in worship. That's what you do. Because ultimately, Jesus has the final authority. God has all authority. 
Theologian uh, James Hamilton Jr. said, there's no dominion, no region, no locality over which he does not reign. He is Lord over all. He is Lord over our lives. What, what does that mean? Is he Lord over our free time? Lord over our finances, our relationships? Is he Lord over what we watch and what we listen to? He comes back with many diadems. He is Lord over all. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And the commentators kind of disagree over what this means. I'm, I'm going to go with uh, this man, James ha Hamilton Jr. He says this, God is infinite, which means we will never exhaust him. He is transcendent. He reveals himself to us, but is ultimately beyond our ability to comprehend. Think about this. In heaven, we'll continue to grow in our knowledge of who God is, but we will never exhaust who God is. Isn't that amazing? Like every day in heaven, we'll continue to know God and we'll worship him more for who he is, but we will never exhaust who he is. I remember a preacher, Paul Washer, once saying, Perhaps in heaven each day we will learn in ever-increasing ways of who Jesus is and what he accomplished on the cross and we'll worship him more and more and more. So he has a name, name that only he knows and he comes back clothed in a robe dipped in blood. It's like, what? It is, it's just, uh, every statement is just amazing. Um, some commentators think that it's referring to Isaiah 63. Verses 1 to 3, and I'm just going to read just a few verses to show you that. And it says this in verse 2, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? The response is, I have trodden the, the winepress alone, and from the people, peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. But the thing is, as Jesus is coming back, the battle hasn't even yet occurred. So why would he have the blood of the enemies already? So I, I would disagree with that. I would actually say this is Jesus' own blood on his garments. The blood that he shed to atone for sin, to pay for our rebellion against God. It's similar to in Revelation uh, chapter 5, verse 6, when John is looking for the lion, the lion of Judah, and then he sees the lamb, the lamb looking as if he was slain, right? Even in heaven, Christ shows the price of redemption, his own blood. In Revelation 12, 11, it's written that the saints are defeating Satan by the blood of the lamb. Our hope is in Christ, in Christ alone. We remember this during Easter. We remember this every time we have the Lord's Supper together. Every time we gather on a Sunday morning, we remember that it's Christ and Christ alone. His name is the Word of God. And this is John writing in John, John's Gospel, right? 1 verse 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John MacArthur writes this about this phrase, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate Son of God, is called the Word of God because he is the revelation of God. He is the full expression of the mind, will, and purpose of God. Amazing. And it says, the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Who are these armies? 
It could be angels. Some see it as like the, the heavenly angels. But I think these are the redeemed, uh, spoken of in Revelation 17, 14. It says in Revelation 17, 14, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. They are following him and they're dressed in pure garments. What about us? We cannot follow Christ stained with sin. It's only by repenting of our sins and putting our faith into his sacrifice on the cross that we can be made clean through him, through his blood we are clean. That's how we're given those pure white garments. Right? It says in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though our, your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Or let us remember that old hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So I believe those are the redeemed who have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. That's why they have those white, pure garments. It's the same for us as well. And more than that, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. If you just picture that uh, for a moment. Remember, this is symbolic language, but it's amazing. And, and with that, it says this, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And I believe it's fulfilling passages from the Old Testament. There are many. I'll just read a few. Isaiah 11:4. Isaiah writes, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Right? Isaiah written in like 700 B.C., anticipating the return of Christ. And Psalm 2. I was so pleased that we read Psalm 2 this morning. I was like, because Psalm 2 is really talking about this, the return of Christ. That's where it's fulfilled. But I'm like, ah, that's, that's maybe too much to read the whole psalm. But we did. Praise the Lord. I'm just going to read Psalm 2, verse 9. It says this, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what we see here happening is the fulfillment of that psalm, Isaiah, and other prophecies at Jesus' second coming. You know, the idea of the conquering king, it was common belief uh, in Jesus' time, right? That when the Messiah would come, he would overthrow the government and take back Israel's freedom by force. That's what they're all anticipating. But then, but Jesus, he didn't come that way. He came meek and mild, humbly riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey, and was crucified. They didn't know God's timeline. But in his second coming, he comes as the conquering king. And it says this about him. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. I think that part would be referring to um, Isaiah 63. It would be fulfilled in the, in the next part we'll look at when Jesus fights this battle. MacArthur says this about this. The vivid symbol of God's wrath comes from the ancient practice of stomping on grapes as part of the wine-making wine process. The imagery of a wine press also portrays judgment in the Old Testament. And on his robe and on his thigh, says the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we see this term always used in the Old Testament of God. And even actually in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verses 14 to 16, we see this used again to describe God the Father, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But we see in Revelation, it's used as Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Amen? 
You will notice about Jesus' second coming, like of the description that we just looked at, no one is going to say, Jesus is my homeboy. No one's going to use that language. No one's going to talk about the sissified hippie Jesus that's often portrayed in Christian pop culture. Everyone, whoever witnesses his second coming will be bowing down if they're not gathering to fight, as we shall see. So I want you to see here in these verses, in 11 to 16, Jesus said his second coming. I believe as we read these passages, as we read them and as you reread them, it should stir in our hearts a growing adoration, increasing reverence for Christ, and a desire to worship. This is the introduction to his return. It's not the introduction to my message, but the introduction to his return because he's coming to judge. And then there's the great battle. It's the great battle. And I put it in quotation marks, question, like, is it the great battle? As you shall see, because, well, you'll see. In verse 17, we'll continue on. I saw an angel standing in the sun. Remember this symbolic language, that's what he saw. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Wow. This is before anything even occurs. The angels calling to the birds, be ready. James Hamilton Jr. writes this. There are, there are actually two feasts in chapter 19. There was a marriage feast of the Lamb in verse 9 we, uh, we didn't read. But now there's a great feast of God here in verse 17. The guests at the marriage supper are those who trust Christ, who's rede- who have been redeemed from their sins by his blood. The guests at the great feast of God here in 1917 are the birds who will feast on God's enemies. So the, the angel calls out the birds, be ready. And look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathering, gathered, sorry, to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. And who is the beast? Well, he's, he's introduced in Revelation chapter 13. The beast is a pawn of the devil used to deceive the world and draw people to worship the dragon and himself. And he's used to rally the people against God in rebellion. It says here that they, they gathered, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against Christ. Can you just picture it? If there's huge tanks, I don't know what type of machinery they're using. I don't know how far they're coming from to meet in one central point. It would take a long time to gather all the armies together, make sure all the weapons are ready, all the guns are loaded, make sure you have all your armor on, you know, make sure you're in formation. Could you just imagine how long it would take to get everyone rebelling against the Lord gathered together? It's going to take a while. And even maybe in, in, as they're anticipating it, I don't know if, if the devil, if the beast, if, if someone's giving some sort of speech, we're, we're going to do this. Some sort of inspiring speech. You know, but just, just, just picture it. It just doesn't just happen in an instant. It's one verse, but it will take a long time to gather together. But look at, look at verse 20. And the beast was captured. 
And with it, the false prophet who is in its presence, who had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Do you see that? Done. In an instant. Jesus just shows up, and it's over. There is no battle. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture or this painting. It has Jesus and the devil, and they're like having this arm wrestle. And they're almost painted as equals. Like they're, they're wrestling back and forth. What garbage, right? Friends, we need to understand a few things. The devil is on a leash, and he only has power as God allows, and that for a limited time. On the cross, Jesus destroyed the power and authority of the devil, and all who would repent of their sins and look to Christ in faith would be saved. They'd be taken from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God's. And that's where it stands right now, what Jesus did on the cross. It started, and when Jesus returns, just as he shows up, it'll be finished. There will be no battle, for Christ reigns supreme. On his head are many diadems. There's not this struggle between the devil and God. God reigns supreme and sovereign. I want you to remember this depiction of the return of Christ. I would just, I would really encourage you uh, in the days to come, revisit Revelation 19. Read and think on the description of Jesus at his return. I want you to be blessed as you think about the certainty of his return. As you look at our world and the atrocities taking place of human trafficking and murders and abortions and sexual abuse and political corruption, the list could go on and on and on. But we can hope. We can hope in Christ's return. We know the day is coming when Jesus will return and will fully reign as king. Think about this now. You know the future, the, the big picture. You know where human history is headed, but what will you do with that knowledge? That's the thing. Knowing the future should change the way you live in the present. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Christ, I would just implore you, beg you, turn to Christ and be saved. He died on the cross for your sins. If you would repent and look to him, cry out to him, he would save your soul. If you do not know him, that would be your one response to this message. Turn to Christ, because he's coming back. And when he comes back, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his name. If we continue on in Revelation, there's a great judgment. Only those in Christ will be in heaven. Those not in Christ will be in hell for all eternity. If you already do know him, I just want to leave you with, with three thoughts, three things. This message should leave you with a sense of urgency. The time is quickly passing, right? We don't know when Jesus is coming. You cannot put that day on a calendar, but every day finishes is one day less he's coming back. You look in the New Testament, there was this anticipation, any day. He's coming again soon. We don't know when that is, but there should be a sense of urgency. Each day passing, we're drawing closer. We're, we're going so fast towards that day. And so that sense of urgency should give us a burden. 
for those who know Christ, to share the gospel. And share the gospel, I would say, think about like this. Think about in, in terms of concentric circles. You'll get what I mean in a second. First, share the gospel with those in your home. With your loved ones in your home. Then think of those in your family. Your, your extended family. Your neighbors. Those, those you work with. Those in your community. Strangers. I would even think of that, that little list I just did in your home in your family, in your extended family, your neighbors, and even maybe just think of maybe three to five people who don't know the Lord in those circles who you could write down you could start praying for. Praying, one, for their salvation. Praying, two, for an opportunity to just start to be able to share your faith with them. And, and then look for opportunities. Pray for those things and then look for opportunities. Because Jesus is coming back. It should give us a sense of urgency. We don't know when, but it's soon. Secondly, Jesus' coming back should give us an increasing hope. Right? If we believe, yes, Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he, he rose again. And right now he's sitting at the right hand of the Father and interceding for us. So we're so certain. We trust him. He's faithful and true. He's coming back again. And we can hope in that. We know that justice will come to this earth as Jesus returns. One day everything will be made right. One day our struggle with sin personally and with sin in this world will be over. And we can look forward to that with a hopeful, hopeful expectation of the certainty of this day. We cannot mark it on our calendars, but we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that each day his return is drawing closer and we can hope in that. And thirdly, I just want to leave with you, I think in terms of this message, we should be ready. Being ready is living for Jesus in your daily life now. It's living in the present with an eye fixed on his return and eternity. It's daily seeking the Lord in prayer and reading the word and asking God's help and grace to live it out. Asking God for forgiveness where you mess up. Asking God's grace to live out the truths you find in the word. You know, it's, it's the fact that Jesus is coming back should drive us to our knees to pray. Lord, help me. Help me, I'm thinking personally, to love my wife as I should. Help me to, to teach my children about you and point them to you. Help me, Lord, to live out as an example to them that I, I do know you, you are in my life. Lord, help me to share the gospel with those around me. Help me to be a witness in word and in deed to those who I run into, to those in my life. So we should be ready for his return. There's a lot more I could say about this. I would encourage you, though, for the sake of time, in light of this message, I'll read Matthew 25. Matthew 25, Jesus has three parables that speaks uh, right to this issue, right? The first parable is the parable of the ten virgins with oil, five weren't ready, and, and five were ready. The second parable is the parable of the talents. You know, the king leaves them something, leaves them a talent, and goes away, and he comes back. And what did you do with what the king gave you? And then the third one is the judgment between the sheep and the goats, the separation at the end of days. So I would just encourage you with this message, read Revelation 19 again. 
Psalm 2 again. If you, if you, just to remember, Psalm 2, it's like victory. Jesus comes back. It's the victory. And the other part, Matthew, the first gospel, when Jesus comes back for believers, it'll be high five. 25. Matthew, I was just trying to think of a way to remember that. <laughs> Matthew 25. Remember Jesus' last words recorded for us in Scripture. Psalm 22, 20. Jesus' last words, and he says this, Surely I am coming soon. Isn't that amazing? That's Jesus' last words in Scripture. Surely I am coming soon. Friends, I, I, I showed you the New Testament writers all had a watchful anticipation. May that grow in us. As we looked at Revelation 19, I pray we have a growing adoration for Jesus. And lastly, I said, knowing the future should change the way we act in the present. Give us a sense of urgency, increasing hope, and that we should be ready. If you just bow with me, I'd like to close this time in prayer. Lord, we, we read of the future. I can't do it justice, Lord. Holy Spirit, apply that word to our hearts that you would just change the way we live today. God, may you bring this word back to our minds. May you seal it in our hearts and help us to live differently in the present as we look forward to your second coming. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.